Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show allows us to ask our favorite question once again. We invite scholars, luminaries, and writers we admire onto the show to ask them, what is their one true sentence and why? And then as Hemingway writes, we go on from there. We have had a number of these great interviews collected into a handsome book called One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, which we urge you to buy for the people in your life who love Hemingway or sentences or truth for that matter. We are delighted today to welcome Tim O'Brien, whose new novel is called America Fantastica. He is also the author of, among other works, In the Lake of the Woods, Going After Cacciato, which won the National Book Award in 1979, Dad's Maybe Book, which uses Hemingway as a fascinating through line, and The Things They Carried, which was named the New York Times Book of the Century. Tim also visited the Hemingway Society's conference in Oak Park, Illinois, way back in 2016, and he gave a riveting keynote address about fatherhood, reading, writing, and Hemingway, which I believe is still up on the website. We are thrilled he is joining us today. Tim O'Brien, welcome to One True Podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mark. No, it's great to have you. So, Tim O'Brien, what is your One True Sentence and why? Well, it's a sentence from The Sun Also Rises, spoken by in dialogue by Jake Barnes. Isn't it pretty to think so? Okay, so why did that ending stick out to you, Tim? Well, it's it for a bunch of reasons. One is that it's a character saying the line, dialogue, and it's not a reflection of by the author about the character. It ends with action. Speech is a form of action, of course, and without commentary. More importantly, though, for me, the the, I, the thought behind isn't it pretty to think so, is it? I think it's ubiquitous. I think human beings, in their fantasy lives, and their daydreams, and their revisiting of their lives, years after an event may have happened, develop a kind of, I wouldn't say nostalgic, but a kind of internal fantasy about what could have happened and not what did happen. I could have been a great shortstop. I wasn't, but what if? Isn't it pretty to think so? I could have had a happy marriage. Isn't it pretty to think so? In all kinds of ways. It it reflects on humanity in a way very few sentences, especially with with simple words, can can achieve. It it captures the the human human beings are not gophers or chipmunks. Uh, We reflect on our lives. We're conscious of what has happened, but we're also conscious conscious of what could have happened. 
and it touches on humanity in that sense in a way that Bambi or Daffy Duck don't. So you're reading the adjective pretty as fatuous, nostalgic, overly romantic. I am not reading it that way. I'm reading it the opposite. How so? I'm reading it as a sublime, the human being thinking it's a, it's a common word, but he's, Hemingway is giving that word a new spin or a new meaning, which is beautiful. Isn't it beautiful to think what things might have been? Uh, so I, I look at it as sublimity and not, not by no, in no way at all uh, vulgar. The ambiguity that I find in that line that I was attributing to you was, is Jake accusing himself of pretty thinking or is he accusing Brett of pretty thinking? Does he joining, joining her in that statement? Yeah, I don't really think it's an accusation. I think it's a spoken thought that it's beautiful to think what might have been. I think that in other circumstances, that is, if Boyd, if he hadn't been uh, uh, wounded in the war, there, there would have been a, a, a romance beyond what we see in the book. And both characters know it. Um, Brett articulates it in the question that she asked right prior to just a few, half an inch above isn't it pretty to think so? She says, you know, you know, we could have been had a damn good time together. And even that expression is is uh, not quite what I think she is in her head. That I think she means something more romantic than a good time, even a damn good time. Yeah. Um, but as I say, I think that's a pretty common human reflection uh, about what could have been. Tim, you mentioned that it's the characters doing the speaking. So I wanted to ask you about the strategy that ends The Sun Also Rises of having the novel end in dialogue, not with commentary, not with adverbs, just what the characters say. We see that in The Killers, we see that in Doctor and Doctor's Wife, Hills mm. Like White Elephants, so that you can almost hear the character's voice shimmering as the as the narrative ends. And I would also say, and I hope this isn't spoiling any anything for you or for anybody else, your new novel also ends in dialogue. That's the most I'll say about it. America Fantastica. What's behind that strategy and how do you so how do you read that decision by Hemingway? I'll say a couple of things. One is I think it's a risky strategy for an author, but I think it's an honest strategy. That is, you're letting the characters end the book, not the author ending it. The impression a reader gets that when a story or a novel ends with a human speech, a piece of dialogue, is we're letting the characters conclude the book, and it's almost incon always inconclusive. The Sun Also Rises is a great example. Hemingway does not follow that dialogue with, and then the cab sped away, they went to the train station, she went off to her life, and he went off to his. It ends in, in that car with a piece of human dialogue. 
it doesn't have any sort of tacked on. I, uh, the word that comes to me is epilogue, but I don't really mean it epilogue. I mean simply the story goes on and kind of tidily wraps itself up. We're left in mid-human behavior. A sentence has been uttered, presumably in that cab, another sentence would have been uttered. They wouldn't have fallen silent for the rest of that journey. Something would have been said, oh, God, I, 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 I tried getting on this train or whatever. Wherever. It ends with that hum, bit of human dialogue. Uh, and, a kind of, and for me, life, as long as we're still alive, is inconclusive. Uh, when you and I finish talking, I'll be talking to myself about, well, here, I should have said this, and I could have articulated that better. But your show is going to end with goodbye or lines like that. Yeah. And uh, that, that's, I think that's, that it replicates life. And Tim, not only do we not get the epilogue or some concluding scene into the sunset, but Hemingway resists saying, Jake said wistfully or mused melancholically, or, you know, we, we say sometimes in this show in conversations of how Fitzgerald wrote that Gatsby cried incredulously. You know, one of the most famous lines of the great Gatsby, he cried incredulously. Yeah, yeah. And Hemingway just, I, I remember your character Sanders says, get the hell out of the way and let the story tell itself. And that might, that might be along the same thought pattern here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very similar. The, uh, I believe in human behavior and humor, which includes, as I said, dialogue, as, as the driving force of story. Hmm. It's what we do, what we say, and that's kind of it. Everything else is in the judgment of the beholder. What does it mean? Uh, adverbs and adjectives tack on a kind of meaning for the reader. Even the word, the adverb often, tacks on a meaning. It's more than once this has been said. But the world isn't really like that. The speech may be like that, but we're not tacking on meaning uh, when we're in the midst of, of behaving. We're simply behaving, speaking and, and acting. So human behavior to me seems crucial. I think it felt crucial to Hemingway too. I think of out of uh, up in Michigan, as one of the stories I really adore. It's a nasty story in a lot of ways on the surface. It might even be unteachable in some schools in this country now, uh, because it's, there is there. Although there's a sense of uh, remorse, it's not on the surface. It's not. He said remorsefully. That sort of thing is not in there. Uh, we're left to feel it. Did he feel remorse? Of what sort was the remorse? I doubt very much that his remorse was the remorse of today's political correctness and so on. I don't think it was that kind. I think it was a deeper sort of kind of human specific uh, sadness about what had occurred. So, yeah, ad, I mean, adverbs and adjectives are not, you shouldn't, I don't think a writer needs necessarily to avoid them at all costs and at all times. But I do think one has to be careful about steering the reader away from the behaviors of a character uh, by commenting on it with adjectives and adverbs. Be careful of it. Yeah. Tim, I 
was thinking of you when I was I was reading this letter that Hemingway wrote in 1918. So he's maybe the first letter he wrote home from Milan. And he's writing to his parents. And he says, I wouldn't say war is hell. Because that phrase has been a little overused since General Sherman's time. And you've also negotiated with that phrase. You said war is hell. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. It's, you know, what doesn't mean doesn't mean anything. And when Hemingway, even as a very young man, is saying, I can't say war is hell because that's a civil war phrase, does every war require its own language? Or is there something about writing that, you know, Homer, you, Joseph Heller, like everybody writes, there's something in common with it, or does it need to be updated depending on the conflict? It's a great question, and I don't have a good, great answer for it. War is embedded in a time and place in kinds of expressions, the ways in which things are expressed. Uh, in Vietnam, there was, for example, for every, every situation that one can imagine, there'd be an intervening, it's almost as if words were hyphenated, so let's say someone uh, you know was a hero and jumped on a hand grenade, and then what you would talk about it would be out hyphen fucking hyphen standing out fucking standing about everything. There's a language to it. So, do you use that kind of language? Well, it's ugly language in one way, with that intervening you know epithet, but it's the sound of human beings. So it adds to verisimilitude to have that. It anchors it in a time and place. Uh, I dare say that soldiers in the Civil War, or the American Revolutionary War, or the War of 1812 spoke with the same diction, the same kind of kinds of language that, that uh, Vietnam veterans might speak. And, and similarly with the soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a language that is built through repetition, sort of passed on from old timer to newcomer to the war, a way of speaking about things, an addiction that goes with it. And the diction's interesting, where the language comes from and how it's endured and not forgotten, like many other expressions probably weren't passed on. So the, the language of my war in Vietnam isn't the language of, say, the American Civil War. Uh, yeah, Sherman said war is hell, which is probably, which is in its way a, a true statement. It is. It's full of horror, but it's also full of pity and longing and love for what you don't have hot meal or a cold Coca-Cola or, or the comforts of a hometown or a nice bed, all you don't have, but in which you, you had taken for granted when you had them. Go buy a Big Mac if you're hungry, but in a war you can't. So war is, is a kind of longing and a kind of love for that which you don't, which you t had taken for granted. 
were so many other things. It's friendship in a way that you've never felt friendship before because somebody's keeping you alive by staying awake on guard. And there's a love for that guy who doesn't let himself fall asleep. It's all kinds of things. It is primarily hell, I think. Um, we ought not to be doing it. War is sanctioned homicide. And I don't care for sanctioned homicide. We should stop doing it. But uh, so far we haven't. Maybe we never will. In The Things They Carried, one of your characters says, war is a bitch, which strikes me as an updated form of war is hell, where on the surface, it's yeah. more more minor, but in, in a weird way, it's intensified. Yeah, it's it takes on another meaning. I don't think the word bitch would have been, I'm not sure that they could have printed it back in the year 1620 or so. <laughs> and uh, same with much other language. Somehow Shakespeare got away with that. I don't know how the hell he did, but very often he did. In my new book, America Fantastic, I, I, I go into this in some depth about the uses of language, especially by conspiracy theory people that we're living with in this day, day and age, reptiles manning the phone banks at the IRS, literally manning them. There's a language on the internet now for example, I only two weeks ago learned what the meaning of the word woke. I had no idea what it meant. My kids, now a senior in high school and a junior in college, they had to tell me what the hell that meant. They had trouble, trouble defining it, for one thing. I think it means, although I'm still not totally certain, <laughs> something like politically correct. I think it means, does it mean something like that? Yeah, yes. I, I I read the word and sort of just went, let my eyes go over it without thinking about it. Each I guess what I'm saying is that each age, and by age I simply mean year after year after year, the language evol evolves, and new words come in with new meanings. Some survive, some don't. A writer pays attention to these sorts of things. If you set a book during World War One. Hemingway did, you're going to pay attention to the diction and the language of that time and milk it, that is, make use of it. Yeah. Um, where did the word, the word pretty that you just brought up, of, you know, 10 minutes ago is a really great example of it, where a word takes on another meaning in context. Sitting in a cab with a, someone you might have had a lasting love with, pretty to think so, has a beauty to it that uh, for me mimics the, the beauties in the human spirit. Tim, maybe the best example of what you're talking about, about this attention to diction and dialogue and, and uh, vocabulary is that really famous passage in A Farewell to Arms. I was always embarrassed by the word glory and sacrifice, hallow, in vain, which you could see is talking about a more romantic mm -hmm. era and attitude about war. Could that paragraph have ended up in one of your novels about the Vietnam War, or is it already stale by the time you're writing? No, the idea of that 
passage about the glories of war and hallowed and in vain. It is embarrassing. I, I'm offended by that language. It's much the same way I think that the characters in Hemingway's book, and I think Hemingway himself, uh, were offended. It's a, it's a pretty, in a different sense, the word pretty veneer put over horror. In a way, the Gettysburg Address offends me in the same kind of way, that these men may not have died in vain, that passage of the Gettysburg Address. It is in vain. War is in, it's in vain. What does it accomplish? What has it ever accomplished? One could say, for example, we've stopped fascism during World War I. Well, that's an accomplishment. The question is, does it have to be accomplished by worldwide mass slaughter? When I, my friends who died in Vietnam, they'd step in a landmine and lose a leg and then they'd bleed to death and lose their heads and their arms and their feet and so on. They're not lying on the ground thinking, oh, this, I, this didn't happen in vain. You know, I did it for a greater cause to stop the spread of communism across Southeast. They were thinking my fucking leg is gone and my arm is gone and it hurts and I'm screaming and like, dear God, please let me live. Please let me live. Please let me live. Right. They're thinking dear Jesus thoughts, but they aren't thinking these celebrative thoughts that the, the phrases you mentioned about glory, what a, oh, how glorious it is to be lying here twitching and my stump thumping and all the blood gushing out of me. None of that. All that horror is elided and banished by phrases like hallowed and in vain and glorious and so on. So my thoughts are much like Hemingway's. I don't notice them so much in Homer. I have to say that there, that, that there is, a, at least in the present day, translations of Homer, and even in earlier ones like Pope and so on. I'm not sure that this was recognized. I think, as you said earlier, I think in a, there was a time and place when those phrases truly meant something to people in a way that they, to the contemporary soldier, I don't think they do. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. I would like to talk a, a little bit about one true sentences in general, uh, the concept of one true sentences, because what strikes me about your work is that you're not only wrestling with the moral difficulties of warfare, but also the artistic difficulty of how to convey it, of how to convey it on a sentence-by-sentence by basis. And in the chapter in The Things They Carried called How to Tell a True War Story, this is as explicit and conscious as, as it can, mm -hmm. can be. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about those ideas with Hemingway in mind also, where you say, uh, how, how do you tell a true story? What are some of the conclusions from that chapter? And one of it is, it's true, independent of its factual veracity. It's true if it makes you feel 
something, if the reader feels something. Is that kind of the lit, one of the litmus tests of truth when we start talking about one true sentences? Yeah, it is. It's one of them. Another is that what is true one day may not be true the next, mm -hmm. or what is true one minute ago may not be true the next minute. It's true for this just a hypothesis or a situation where a man and a woman are sitting in a cafe and one says to the other, I don't love you and never have. What was true 10 seconds ago to, to the to recipient of this kind of comment isn't true anymore. We're madly in love. We're going to be married. We're going to honeymoon in Australia, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's become untrue. What is true right now at this instant when you and I are talking is my computer says it's 10.42 a.m. Well, it ain't true in Tokyo, is it? At the same instant, that statement, which is a linguistic statement, which is another point to make that truth is, is human made. It's not, it's not, the universe does not present itself by saying, I am an atom and I am true. It's just a fucking atom. Or a tree does not say to you, I am an elm tree. And I, aren't I glorious, but I'm also endangered in Minnesota through Dutch elm disease. Doesn't, it doesn't say that stuff. It's in the, it's human made. That is the human notices there are these trees that are dying of Dutch elm disease and the human makes up the truth, which is another element of that. We make up our truths. Right. In researching America Fantastica, I discovered that these conspiracy people, they're, they're not, they don't think they're making this stuff up about salamanders right. manning the phones for the IRS. They believe it and they believe it literally. That is, these are salamanders. Hard to swallow, sounds ridiculous, almost sounds impossible, but it ain't. That these things are believed. Man never walked on the moon. It's, it's, it's not maybe. It's, it didn't happen. Lee Harvey Oswald, war nicht so schlecht. He wasn't so bad. They believe it. He wasn't so bad. He killed a horrible guy in Kennedy. The, so truth is manufactured. What is true for these people seems to me ludicrous, uh, ridiculous, and preposterous, impossible, and yet it's swallowed. So truth is a, is a man-made thing, and for each human being, truths about well, virtually anything are going to be askew. They're not going to be identical. In so many ways, the word truth it's, itself is almost a meaningless word. Because it's so different from person to person to person to person. By all my work in one way or another, from my very first book now to my last book ever, has been in one way or another informed by this tug of war between fiction and nonfiction. Where does one blur into the other? And I've consciously made four of my books pretty explicitly about this tug of war. Yeah. The things they carried probably to the extreme, but I think my new book, maybe to even, even greater extreme extreme. So how to, t how to tell a true war story, the title, the chapter title 
acknowledges that tension and subjectivity in its very title. It does. The word the word tell. Yeah, right. That is tell as in articulate a war story, or how do you tell what's true mm. or not? That is tell in the sense of how do you know? Yeah. So the word tell has these two kind of as a tension and meaning. And I'm interested in the latter much more than the former, really. I mean, I am interested in how to articulate this stuff, that is choosing sentences that aren't stale and uh, have have a certain grace and freshness. But I'm mostly interested in how do, how do we recognize what is true, even in ourselves? Ultimately, I thought prior to Vietnam that I was a nice, nonviolent, polite guy and discovered otherwise, or at least became otherwise, and then discovered that I have this capacity, and not only the capacity, I could do it. I was. I became somebody different in a war. Life in a civilian world is just full of stuff like that. You don't think you're capable of something until you become it and do it, and then suddenly you know you're not only capable, you are doing it. And the person you were five minutes ago is not the person you've become. You've become some other person. And that evolves, too. There's a mutability and a fluidity to this word truth that's constantly evolving, even about ourselves. And there's this moment, Tim, I just to extend what you were talking about, maybe you can, I'm sorry for foisting this on you, but maybe you could comment on it. In the chapter on the Rainy River, you say, uh, so your, your character is contemplating uh, fleeing, and fleeing for safety uh, rather than conscription says uh, 20 yards. I could have done it. I could have jumped and started swimming for my life inside me in my chest. I felt a terrible squeezing pressure. Even now, as I write this, I can still feel that tightness and I want you to feel it. So you're actually addressing this concept of it's about emotion. It's about feeling there's almost an implicit anxiety that you're not getting the power of the experience across. That must be a very, very complicated situation for a writer. It is. I mean, I think every writer goes through it. How do you, how do you convey that which is happening in your heart and in your head as a human being as you're writing sentences? In a way, that passage you just said, especially the opening lines of it, you know, the guy is... I, I could have jumped. I could have been swimming for my life. The next sentence could have been, isn't it pretty to think so? <laughs> There's that, that's what I meant by that. <laughs> the power of Hemingway's line, it, it's, I wish I had. It's pretty to think that I had not gone to Vietnam, that I had not, you know, let my body be taken there and my head and everything, every other part of me taken to Vietnam. It's pretty to think so. Uh, it's a great example of the power of Hemingway's line. Yeah. Going back to what you were, to that line and to what you were just saying, the danger of viewing truth as a simple objective fact and the danger of absolutism 
Do you think that you and I could have a conversation about, isn't it pretty to think so tomorrow? And you have a completely different interpretation of it. And the line changes along with us as readers. It's not only possible, it's probable. (laughs) (laughs) What I mentioned earlier that I'll leave this uh, talk you and I are having right now, which has been fun, by the way. Great. And as soon as we're done, I'll be wishing I had added or qualified maybe even subtracted from what I've said. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'll be abridging and substituting other language for the language I have used here. The beauty about being a writer is you go that these are like drafts of, of what you do when you're a writer. Yeah, right. That's and with true. writing, you can actually end up with sort of the best possible version at the moment, so it seems. Not that yeah, I don't revise after books are published. I certainly do. Not a lot, but as much as I can get away with. What you and I are doing now, because neither of us are you know, reading scripts and so on, is we're doing the best we can. Is what, And that's good, because that's how, by and large, we have to get our way through life, isn't it? You do your best with your plumber when he shows up and, yeah. you know, takes his muddy boots across your white carpet. You do your best you can. <laughs> but, but it's all kind of extemporaneous and ad hoc. Yeah. Uh, and th- this is also extemporaneous and ad hoc. And if it's unfair, again, please just tell me. There is a couple of one true sentences as we're concluding that I just wanted to run by you because I can't resist. Uh, one is a one true sentence that is at the very beginning of the things they carried that I was wondering if you would comment on, because to me, it doesn't seem like it should be a one true sentence, but it is. So again, I apologize. I'm going to read your own work for you, which I know is probably a delight for you. So it goes like this. Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches and heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene. Ted Lavender, who was scared carry tranquilizers, dot, dot, dot. And I want to know why who is scared, which you repeat later in the book, is effective. Doesn't it, am I wrong in that that shouldn't work to refer to a character and just say, oh, Ted Lavender, who is scared? Why, Why is that so powerful in that moment? Not me. It's uh, so much of what, any writer does, and I, I include Hemingway in this, and probably even Shakespeare. You trust in sometimes in what is not, what is under the surface of the word scared. What is under the surface of it? And how does it, is it just Ted Lavender who's scared? I don't think so. It, it's, it's a, it's a way of, a way of using a, common word which you'd think would be not just common it, it, it's the being of warfare that unless you don't value your own life you're you're scared of losing it what's is there a god is there a heaven am i going there it's it, never that explicit a thought it's to, all of that stuff is buried under the future of losing ones all we know is life we don't know death no one can come back and report on it so that, that, that for me is beneath it. Um, another, it's another 
comment I have on the word scared is that what 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 are the alternative words you can use? And scared seemed to be the least common. Uh, I mean, the most most common, the most low level word you could say terrified. Words like that, which artificially rev up just the common thing, scared, the common word scared. To, to rev up is to make artificial. Um, that yeah. We're sort of going back in a way to, to just word choice, what you choose to, words you choose to use. It's seeming the simple way of saying an obvious thing because to try to say it otherwise would be to uh, artificially rev it up. The tranquilizers do enough revving by the fact of that he's taken tranquilizer, tranquilizers. You know, not a bad idea. The Army should have dispensed them with our sea rations and did not. Maybe we should write a letter right now and have them put in the rations for our troops. So if he just carried tranquilizers and you didn't tell us he was scared, would we have been able to put that together? Not in the same way. No, there's no commentary I make on the tranquilizers. I don't make it, I don't, I'm not derisive of it and I'm not applauding it. Right. It's just exactly. a, it's presented as a fact. It's not a fact that actually occurred. It's a made up truth that, that I never saw any tranquilizers in Vietnam. There was, the, there was a desire to be tranquil in the midst of this horror. I think we all mm. felt it. I think soldiers in general feel it. I think it's felt in cancer wards. I think it's felt in yeah. the midst of bad divorces, in the midst of losing your father. In all kinds of ways, there, I think there's a desire for tranquility, a sense of peace of mind over what life delivers to us. And tranquilizers are an artificial way of getting there. I think we would much prefer a more something coming from us as opposed to something coming into us as a way of getting there. But the point is there's a yearning for it. There's a yearning for tranquility when you don't have tranquility. Uh, and tranquility doesn't mean numbness. Uh, it means a, a, a surrendering to the world as it's presented itself to us and what it's done to us and with us. Uh, a desire for a piece of it that's not just no conflict, but a piece in the heart and a piece in the head. Is And so is who was scared maybe doesn't mean nobody else was scared, but it might mean we identify him or it's it's more noticeable or it's, it's how you associate this particular character. Yeah, that's, that's well said. You hope as a writer that readers will pay attention to the words you write and not put their own words in. So when you read the word tranquilizer, the base root is tranquil, you hope that resonates somehow, even if without thinking about it consciously, almost in the sense that I meant when I said the army should be issuing these things, that the last thing you're feeling is tranquility, but that's what you're yearning for. You're yearning for that sense of tranquility in the midst of everything that's so the opposite all around you. So, Tim, in Dad's Maybe book, you go through several Hemingway stories, and you also talk about 
that your father assigned you to read some of Hemingway's stories as a young man. And one of those is The Killers. And you do a really interesting job of talking about some of the, let's say, Hollywood coincidences in that story. But there is a line in that story that made me think of some of your writing about writing. And that is after Nick Adams gets released from being detained, of being, uh, being a hostage, Hemingway writes, he had never had a towel in his mouth before, which in and of itself is a ludicrous sentence. But I said, well, I thought Tim would have said, I love that sentence. I do. I do love that sentence. For all my criticisms of the story, I still like it. I mean, I, I don't love it the way I love uh, you know, Indian Camp and Up in Michigan, Cat in the Rain, uh, Clean Well Lighted Place, uh, McCumber, uh, mm-hmm. Kilimanjaro. There, there are stories of Hemingway's that I just love. A Soldier's Home is one of them I adore. But I do like it. That is, he's using a format that's kind of hard-boiled, sort of derives, it has a slight smell of his hard-boiled detective predecessors or the, the stories like that. And yet he makes interesting use of it line by line. The language itself is really cool. There's that line where Ole is uh, lying, I think, in bed, and Nick comes to warn him you know, that these guys are after you. And he, and he says, I'm t- I think he says, I'm tired of running. Is that, do you remember the exact words? I, all that run, I'm, I'm through with all that running around or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's good writing versus tired of. That's an example I'm through with all that. It's such a cool yeah. way of saying it. And it's so matter of factly cool. It's not revved up artificially by, oh, I've run my whole life. I'm going to, I'm sick of it. I'm going to take my medicine. All that stuff is under the surface. I'm simply, I'm through with it. That's really good writing. I mean, it's it carries yeah. in its simplicity. It carries all that baggage with it without rev- that artificial feeling I get in so many so much mediocre writing. Sometimes I feel as if writers, and I won't exclude myself from them on occasion, feel the need to press the point to go go beyond yeah. the human behavior. Uh, and the utterance of that line by Olives, that was a, I thought it was a remarkable moment. I did want to ask him why, but he's a character, so I couldn't. Like, what? what why yeah, he was what, giving why up? Why are you surrendering now? Like, what happened to make you quit now? But that's one of the virtues of fiction is you want to leave in the reader's heart a sense of mystery about every character. You don't want to over-explain what makes the character the character with too much, you know, why is the wicked will stepmother? Why is she wicked? And she had a bad childhood and she failed grammar in college and uh, she's born ugly. It, it, it explains away the mystery of people. And one of my fascinations with all my characters is I don't wholly understand any of them, including the Tim O'Brien and the things they carry is a, a fiction. He's not me. 
um, I think abiding mystery is really important in fiction. Nick has the same frustration that you do at, at the end of The Killers. He says, I can't stand to think about it. Yeah. And, and the advice he gets is, well, you better not you think, think about, about it. it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier, Tim, if you just didn't think about it? Oh, it's pretty to think so. <laughs> it, <laughs> okay. With that in mind, if you could just repeat your one true sentence, Tim O'Brien. Isn't it pretty to think so? We had a damn good time with you, Tim. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you, Mark. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Well, what a pleasure to hear from Tim O'Brien. I'm so glad he could join us for One True Sentence. And Michael Von Cannon, could you pop out for just one second? I'm here. Hey, Mark. Hi, Michael. Tim and I were talking about that moment at the Hemingway Conference in 2016 in Oak Park, where he gave that riveting speech, a lot of which ended up in Dad's Maybe book. Mm. You were there, right, Michael? I was there. I was there at the Hemingway Conference uh, in Oak Park in 2016. I remember, I, I remember heading to uh, Tim's uh, speech and going about to go through the doors to the venue. And Tim is up, kind of at the at the balcony door above us, kind of hanging out right before the venue itself, and kind of waving down <laughs> to people before it started. It was a I mean, we can get into it in a minute, but it was a wonderful experience and a, a wonderful kind of uh, entrance even. So he was talking about Hemingway and writing and fatherhood and war, mm. and he kind of swirled them all together. And all I mm. really remember, I mean, I know it's still up on the website. The main thing I remember, let's say, is... You could hear a pin drop, the tension in the room. He was so riveting in how he delivered that that speech, wasn't he? You know, I've been to good keynote addresses. I've been to good speeches at academic conferences. Um, I've been to very few, I guess, awe-inspiring uh, speeches yeah. like that. Or like you're saying, ones where everyone uh, is quiet and it's riveting and you can feel the the tension. I think you were talking about it as a swirl. I, I think just a second ago as you were describing it, and that's a really good way to describe it. I mean, I remember him to, you know, in that moment, I'm talking about Cat in the Rain and connecting it to another story and bringing it back to his own, his own kind of autobiography and how that connected with his own stories. And what, what was really great to me about it and taught me something as a, a student of literature and someone who wanted to be a teacher of it is how do you hold or how do you try <laughs> for me? How do you try to hold an audience um, in that kind of kind of rapt attention? And he did it so well, not just in his um, analysis, but in the way that he would change rhythm. I mean, I remember him moving from kind of a, qu a quick pace discussion to really slowing down he would move in terms of tone from comedy to seriousness. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about kind of on a dime. He would move from something that was um, so funny to something that was so tragic quickly where you you were caught off guard and you found yourself laughing 
at a moment that he was just talking about while he was discussing something that was so serious and so sad. Yep. And th- the way that he would do that time and again, you were, you were just uh, on the edge of your seat. As brilliant as the speech was, it never seemed easy for him to give the speech. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in the sense that every word was labored over and he was emotional when he was giving the speech. And Michael, we should definitely put the link mm-hmm. to that speech in our show notes just so people don't think that we're <laughs> uh, fantasizing this. I imagine him approaching it with the same craft he would approach a story. And now yeah. it's the performance of a story in a way. I mean, it had that kind of energy to it. So it was a thrill to have Tim O'Brien on One True Podcast and for him to slum with us and deliver his One True Sentence. Thanks for coming on, Michael, and sharing your memory of Oak Park 2016. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode and past episodes are available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Hemingway Talk, we invite you to join our One True Book Club on Patreon, where we are reading A Farewell to Arms, chapter by chapter. Just visit patreon.com slash Podcast and pay as little as $2 a month for all our content. Our book, One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, is available anywhere books are sold. So if you have someone in your life who loves books and Hemingway, One True Sentence makes a wonderful gift. This show is supported by the Hemingway Society and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. (laughs) 